So I'll begin. I'll ring the bell once to start, three times to end. So as we begin, just take a few moments to make sure that you're settled and comfortable, adjusting your body any way you might need to. Um, it's good when we're doing meta practice to be comfortable. And to help us remember that we're all here practicing together and to bring our attention to this moment, let's also take three community breaths. Breathing in and out. In and out. In and out. So as a prelude to our loving-kindness practice, I'd like to begin with a poem from the anthology, First Free Women, that um, I think many of you are familiar with, It that has poems from some of the earliest Buddhist nuns. And this one is by Mita. She says, Oops. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear won't find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. So taking just a few moments to sit with these words, considering this path of friendship, this path of Sangha, really. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. This path of friendship that leads us home. So now let's begin in the spirit of friendship or loving kindness. And I'd suggest uh, first beginning with ourselves, if that feels comfortable for you. Bringing a sense of kindness and acceptance to ourselves, kind of in that spirit of making our own minds our friends. But if this feels too difficult for you right now, you can always begin with some being that's really easy for you to feel meta towards maybe a pet, maybe a child, 
You know, sometimes it's just that way. We are our own most difficult person. So settle in with the individual that you are going to offer towards, either yourself or a very easy being. Getting a sense of them. And you can just Stay here if you like, simply connecting with your sense of yourself or this person in a sense of kindness or metta. Or if it feels right to you, you can offer metta phrases. And I'll give you some examples of common phrases. But if you have phrases that you like to use yourself, you can always substitute your own. And for this example, I'll use phrases for oneself, but you can always adjust, you know, just adjust if you're offering to another being. So let's begin. Tuning into that sense of kindness. Friendliness. May I be safe and protected from harm. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I live with ease. May I be safe and protected from harm. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I live with ease. Continuing in your own way, using the phrases that work for you. Or simply resting in the sense of metta. Connecting with yourself or that other being with a feeling of kindness.
May I be safe and protected from harm. May I be happy, peaceful. May I live with ease. Now, you're welcome to just stay right here where you are with yourself <clears throat> or perhaps with a very easy being. But if you're ready, you can shift your focus from yourself to an easy being or from an easy being to yourself. Um, and this easy being might be a benefactor, like a teacher or a mentor, or maybe it's a family member, a relative, a good friend. Someone it's easy for you to feel meta towards. Or as I've said before, if you've been doing that kind of a being, maybe you feel ready to move to yourself. So decide who you want to offer to, get a clear sense of that individual. Maybe a mental image of them. Offering the meta phrases to this individual, if that works for you. 
May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy, peaceful. May you live with ease. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you live with ease. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you live with ease. Using the phrases as you like, or simply resting in your feeling of meta towards this individual. May you be safe, happy, peaceful, and live with ease.
Again, you're quite welcome to just remain here with yourself or with this easy being, the dear friend, benefactor, someone you're close to. Or if you'd like, choose a neutral person. Somebody that you come in contact with, that you see but don't know very well. It could be somebody here at the Sunday sit who you just kind of see their face on Zoom. Maybe a neighbor you say hi to but don't really know much beyond that. Maybe a clerk at the store, your mail carrier, somebody like that. That you don't have a lot lot of strong feelings about one way or the other and you don't really know so well, probably. So have a clear sense of who you're offering to. And then begin. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy, peaceful, may you live with ease, it might feel a little bit difficult to connect with this person, But if that's the way that it is, that's fine. You know, just do the best you can. Using the phrases, offering the phrases, if that's helpful. Remembering that this person wants to be happy just like you. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy. Peaceful. May you live with ease. Offering just a simple feeling of goodwill.
And finally, if you feel up to the challenge, offering loving kindness to a difficult person. You don't need to choose the most difficult person you can imagine. It can be somebody who's just a little irritating, maybe somebody who can sometimes be your dear friend, but who you feel a little annoyed with. It might not even be a person who does things that upset you, but it could be a person that it's hard for you to offer metaphor because you're jealous of them, or maybe you hurt them in some way and you'd rather not think about it. It might even be yourself. So have a clear sense of who you're offering to and then begin. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy, peaceful. May you live with ease. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you live with ease. And finally, to close, let's consider beings in all of these categories. Benefactors, dear friends, family members, neutral people, difficult people, ourselves too, those near, 
those far, known and unknown. See if we can offer this sense of friendliness to all beings, whoever they may be. May all beings be safe and protected from harm. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease. And may all beings be liberated. So as I mentioned, I think a couple of times already, we're in our series on um, the three jewels and finding refuge in the, the three jewels or the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so here we are already, it's March, and we're on our final refuge, the Sangha. And I think for many of us, this might feel like of the three refuges, this is the one that it just feels really easy to connect with and easy to appreciate. And I think, you know, because we feel, you know, the companionship and support of other people that are practicing with us. And that is a really wonderful thing. But of course, you know, just like finding refuge in the Buddha and refuge in the Dhamma, finding refuge in the Sangha has its challenges. Too. And so we'll be exploring all of these facets of this refuge this month. So um, when we talked about refuge in the Buddha and refuge in the Dhamma, we, the LDL group, we took a kind of a free-form approach to our talks with each person just giving their own thoughts about what refuge, taking refuge meant to them. So we didn't do a lot of organizing really but this month we're doing things a little bit different and differently and so we have a more of an organized sequence of topics so I'm going to begin today by giving an introduction to this topic of taking refuge in the Sangha to give you some ideas about you know about it and things you can start reflecting on uh, during this week and then next week, Suze is going to talk about the challenges of finding refuge in the Sangha, since we don't always find the refuge we might hope to find in our communities. And then on the third week, when we've had a little bit of time to reflect, Arv is going to lead a session in which we'll each be able to really go more deeply into what the Sangha means to us, what we, how we have found refuge and what we need to find refuge there and then share our insights with the group. And then finally, Lauren is going to talk about what we need to build a safe place where we can take refuge. So it will be about the role of the precepts and ethical conduct in the Sangha. So that's our plan 
for the month. So we'll have a variety of kind of different aspects, related topics we'll be covering. So now I'm going to go ahead and begin with the introduction on this topic of taking refuge in the Sangha. So to start out, it might be helpful to simply consider what Sangha is. What does this word mean? Well, <clears throat> the word itself means bring together or community. And so it could really refer to any kind of community. And in fact, in one article I read, it said that the word could even be used for like a flock of birds or a herd of deer. But generally, we use it to mean the community of Dharma practitioners. And this community of practitioners can be considered in several ways. You know, there's sort of one, more than one community we might think about. So Sangha can refer to the community of awakened beings. Or in our Theravada tradition, we might call this the community of arhats. These fully awakened, enlightened beings. Or it can be used to refer to the community of monastics. And it's also used to refer to the community of practitioners on a larger scale. So it would include the monks, the nuns, and the male and female lay followers. In the older tradition, it's sometimes called the fourfold assemblage, this definition of Sangha. And it can also be used to refer to the community of practitioners on a whole worldwide scale that also can constitute the Sangha. Or the community of practitioners throughout time beginning with the Buddha himself. And we also think of Sangha, and I think most often we think of Sangha as the community of practitioners that we sit with, that we talk with, that we study with here every day. And so we might think of the Sim Sangha or maybe our Sunday morning Sangha that meets each week or the Sangha that meets for the drop-in sits, or some other group that we meet with, or just whatever group of practitioners that we are with right now. In some way or another, you could consider these as constituting a Sangha. And all of these different Sanghas can be places where we find refuge. When we think about the community of awakened beings or the community of monastics, we might have a sense of refuge in them as this group of people who have dedicated their whole lives to the Dharma and who preserve the integrity of the teachings so the rest of us can benefit with, from them and who actually realize these teachings and can guide us. And when we think of this group, you know, especially here in the West, we might also include not only monastics, but our lay teachers who, while they're not, you know, part of a monastic community, they've also dedicated their lives to practicing and teaching the Dharma. And they certainly guide us and are preserving the teachings in their way. 
when we think about the community of uh, practitioners worldwide, we might feel a sense of refuge in that feeling that even if we live at different ends of the earth, even if we're separated by culture, by language, we still share something really special with all of these people through our common practice of these teachings. And, you know, wherever we are, wherever we live, whatever language we speak, we all can understand Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dhammam Saranam Gachami, Sangham Saranam Gachami. We take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dhamma. We take refuge in the Sangha. We all understand that. And thinking about this aspect of Sangha, it reminds me of something I read recently in a book um, that I've been reading about this family that went on a pilgrimage to India. And the father was a really dedicated practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, but the rest of the family wasn't involved so much, although um, the mother had her own kind of more casual relationship with practice. So the family went on this trip and they went to Bodh Gaya. And when they got there, there were all of these people from all different countries, all of them paying their respects to the Buddha, all of them doing their practice. And the teenage daughter saw all this and she says, wow, so this isn't just some weird thing that dad does. <laughs> this is something that is important to all sorts of people from all over the world. And it really made a big impression on her. And it can be a wonderful thing for us to know, too. And then there's the community of practitioners through time. And when I think about this one, I think about a story that one of my teachers, Steve Armstrong, would often tell based on his own experience as a monk in Burma. So all the monks in the morning, they'd get up really, really early, of course, and get in line to go up the hill from their sleeping quarters to their hall. And when they lined up, they'd go in order from the one who... Uh, had been practicing, who had been a monk the longest, to the very newest, the ones that had just been ordained. So first there would be this really, really old monk hobbling up the hill with his cane. And then there would be another really old monk and another really old monk. And finally, more monks, more monks. And then finally, towards the very end of the line, here would come, you know, Steve and these other Western monks that had more recently ordained and come to practice. And so Steve said that as he would be waiting, you know, looking up the hill or coming slowly going up with his line <clears throat> and seeing it stretch up the hill, he thought how if you went back, back in time far enough, you know, beyond those very old monks and beyond the monks that were the teachers of those very old monks, eventually you would get to the Buddha himself and there would be the Buddha at the head of the line. And, you know, the Buddha did his practice. He looked deeply into his heart and mind. He understood the truth. And then he turned to the one behind him and said, you know, this is what I see. 
And that person, through their own practice, would answer, yes, that's what I see too. And then they'd turn to the one behind him and say, this is what I see. And that other person would say, yes, I'm practiced and that's what I see too. And then on and on, you know, with this understanding passing from one to the other to the other. And I really love that image. It makes me feel part of, you know, something that's really powerful and precious and special. And I think we all can feel that we're part of that, too. And then we come to what we might think of as, quote, unquote, our sangha. <clears throat> the community of practitioners that we sit with, that we talk with, that we study with, you know, like we might think of this as Sims overall, our Sunday morning sangha, et cetera, et cetera, as I talked about before. <clears throat> These groups that we come with to for Dhamma and meditation instruction to give structure to our practice so we have a regular time and a place to sit, that we come to for companionship and community. So one of the most important aspects of Sangha. So there's all these different forms of Sangha. And when we think about taking refuge in them, just as with the Buddha and the Dhamma, we can think of different levels of refuge, the outer refuge, the inner refuge, maybe even the innermost refuge. So when we think about the outer refuge, this might be simply taking refuge in the fact that these groups are there, that these communities exist. You know, that we know that there are these long <clears throat> lineages of practitioners, monastic communities, lay teachers that have preserved and passed down the teachings, knowing that's a, that there's a worldwide community of Buddhist practitioners, and especially that we have our own more local sanghas, or maybe not so local these days since so many events are available online, that these groups are there to give us a place to go for study, for instruction, for practice. And I know for myself, just the fact that Sims has been here all these years has really made a big difference to my practice. Just because I had a consistent place to go to sit and to hear talks, to do retreats, a teacher to interact with on an ongoing basis. And, you know, along with this, of course, is the really important part of this aspect of outer refuge and that's actually being willing to take the time to go and join a group, show up for a talk or a sit, establish a relationship with the Sangha. And even if you're just there quietly listening on Zoom, you're there. You've taken that action. If we go from the inner level, of, outer level of refuge to the inner level of refuge, we might think of our own personal sense of support and connection with these communities, you know, that kind of sense of refuge that we feel more than just knowing they're there and taking advantage of it, what we feel. So, for example, if we consider the Sangha made up by the community of monastics, 
Maybe those of us who've interacted with Clear Mountain Monastery might feel a sense of refuge in the dedication of the monks that are part of that group, like Ajahn Nisipo, who really are living the teachings with so much depth. Or a similar kind of refuge in our own lay teachers. And, you know, the way that they're there to guide and support us. If we think about the community of practitioners through time, we might think about our own teachers and their teachers and that sense that we're part of that lineage too. Learning from our teachers what they understood from their teachers and realizing it ourselves through our practice. And I know I really was able to feel this kind of sense of um, refuge at Rodney's retreat last weekend, you know, appreciating the things, or not last weekend, but the weekend before, appreciating the things, you know, that he has been trying to tell me and to tell us all of these many years, you know, things that I'm really being able to finally appreciate and understand more and more as I continue. And just knowing, you know, having that kind of relationship And there's the same kind of thing I feel with my other important guiding teachers, you know, that I've been practicing with for a long time. You know, this sense of their support and influence and the influence of their teachers and their teachers' teachers. And when it comes to the community we feel part of here and now that we sit with, most definitely, I'm sure that we feel that inner refuge, that sense of community and support. And, you know, sometimes it's just there in the knowledge that we're sitting with each other. Even if not, a word is exchanged. We're just here together. We might feel it when we see those familiar faces popping up every week on Zoom. We might feel it when we do the small groups and talk about our own practice experiences. And when we realize that things that we're struggling with are often the same things that others of us are struggling with, that we really aren't alone in what we're going through in our practice. The Tibetan teacher, Chalgyam Trungpa Rinpoche, had some good things to say about this aspect of taking refuge in the Sangha in an article of his that was reprinted in Tricycle Magazine, and I'd like to share that with you. He said, Having taken refuge in the Buddha as an example and the Dharma as a path, then we take refuge in the Sangha as companionship. I really like that, companionship. That means we have a lot of friends, fellow refugees, who are also confused and who are working with the same guidelines as we are. Everybody is simultaneously struggling with their own discipline. We are able to act as a reminder and to provide feedback for each other. Taking refuge in the Sangha means being willing to work with your fellow students while being independent at the same time, since each member of the Sangha is an individual who is on the path in a different way from all the others. The companionship within the Sangha is a kind of clean friendship, without expectation, without demand, but at the same time, fulfilling. 
And I, I, I really like that, this sense, the Sangha, we take refuge in the Sangha as companionship. And that sense that we can be reminders to each other to practice, we can give feedback to each other. While remembering too that we have a lot in common, but we each have our own kind of unique understanding. So a really wonderful expression of taking refuge. So moving from the inner to the innermost refuge, here I feel a little bit uncertain because what is exactly this innermost refuge? Maybe I'm still investigating that. But I think maybe that innermost refuge is the deep sense of connection we can feel towards our Sangha members and towards all living beings. As Amita says in her poem, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. And in the article uh, that Jack Cornfield wrote about taking refuge that I used for one of my sources from, from my talk, he describes the progression from outer to innermost refuge in kind of this way as a progression of growing inclusiveness. He says, we take refuge in the Sangha, in the Buddhist community of awakened beings. This outer refuge connects us to a tradition and millions of followers of the Buddha's path. The inner refuge in Sangha shifts from the Buddhist community to all beings dedicated to awakening. We take refuge in this stream. When we take refuge in the innermost Sangha, we acknowledge the inseparable connection of all our lives. The innermost Sangha is the ultimate provenance of trust. Out of this interconnection, we cannot fall or be separated. So that's a beautiful expression to me, that sense of inseparable connection with all beings out of which really, even if we feel separate, we truly cannot fall or be separated. And that really is a true refuge. So let's just sit together for a moment. And I'd like to share again the poem by Mita from the first free women. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. Thank you, everybody.
for being here, for your attention. And now we have some time for small group discussion. Well, hi everybody. Here we are back again. <laughs> Good to see your faces all popping up. You know, sometimes I notice some will come and then there'll be others that they don't come until the last minute. It makes me think, oh, they must be having a really good discussion. <laughs> so now we have some time to uh, share what we talked about in the small groups or, you know, any questions, any comments that you might have, anything that you would like to discuss. You're quite welcome to bring it up right now. You can... Um, Let me know that you have something to say by raising your virtual hand. That's really, really easy to see. But we're a small enough group, so you probably can also just raise your real hand in your picture, and I will see you. So either way is okay. So I'll open the floor to anyone who would like to share anything about Refuge and Sangha. Yeah, Judith. Um, yeah, I couldn't find my reaction button fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, the thing that struck me as I told my group is the line in the poem about making the mind your friend and how important that is and realizing how I'm not doing that at all, you know, pretty much. I'm really judging my mind and all of this stuff. So I just wondered if you could maybe comment on that and what your thoughts are on that yeah you know it's kind of interesting when I reread that poem at the end of the talk and I read that line I think wow I mean we could have a whole talk just about this <laughs> because I think that is really It's one of the hardest aspects sometimes. I feel like it's one of the hardest aspects of practice for us is to actually be able to make the mind our friend and to be able to, you know, one of the hardest things of meta practice, you, know, you start with oneself, but actually to really make a friend of oneself is not always that easy to do because we're so self-critical. And yet it's so important. Um, I mean, just getting the point where I could ex just accept the fact and relax the fact that it's just, it's not doing what I want it to do. And it's probably <laughs> not going to. I'm beginning to get that feeling. It's just not going to. And, yeah. And be at peace with that. Yeah. I think it takes a while to learn because I, um, being able to be at peace with one's own mind and make a friend of one's own mind, you really have to start understanding that the, that mind is not your mind, really. It's, it's doing its own process. So there's a sort of an understanding of the anatta quality of that mind. Yeah. It makes it possible to make the mind a friend and not 
feel like it's so much about me that everything it thinks is a judgment for good or bad about me. Right. I've gotten to the point where my friends, friends out in, you know, in the world, I can, I can frequently more often than not accept that they're not necessarily agreeing with me or they're not, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. they're doing, whatever they do. But I really have a problem when it's my own mind because I think I should be in control of it. And I'm not. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) And I mean, we can understand that intellectually, but understanding it on a really deep level. So we actually let go of that. It's a challenge. Right. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Judith. I think it's a challenge for all of us. And I mean, this could be a whole a whole month we could spend on that topic. So thank you. Yeah. I wanted to add something to that conversation. Um, Lyndall mentioned one of her teachers, Steve Armstrong. And I remember one talk he gave about taking refuge in the mind. And I just thought, what in the hell are you talking about, guy? You know? And yet, in addition to the mind just going off and doing what it does, there's also, that's where wisdom and insight hangs out. And um, moments where we go, the mind comes up with whatever the mind comes up with and something else, and it's, it seems to be in the same realm, says, wait a second, that may not be true. That questioning, investigative, calling BS on the mind. And I go, <laughs> well, huh, well, maybe that's the part of the mind to take refuge in. I mean, I'm still like you both are, I'm still wondering, you know, how does, how does one become friends with the mind? How does one take refuge in the mind? And I think it's a wonderful exploration. So I just wanted to share that part. It is, it is a wonderful exploration. I mean, I can picture Tim and Tori doing a series on that, but yeah, I like that sense of the, taking refuge in that part of the mind that's the wisdom. Yeah, thank you. For me, I think it's also not seeing it all in black and white because sometimes it helps me when I look at when my mind has really served me well, even in ways that might be patterned on, you know, negative history or whatever. But but, uh, sometimes it just helps me to counter you know, beating myself up about my mind's doing this again, just to remind myself that there have been times in my life where my mind has kind of rescued me in a really productive, positive way. So it's it's not seeing it all in black and white is helpful sometimes for me. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, then that's true of our friends and family, too. I mean, they're not black and white. <laughs> they can be wonderful. They can be so frustrating. You want to strangle them. So... <laughs> But you're still there. You're still friends. So mine can be the same. Let's see. I see Jean up here. I think someone else made it. Might have also made a little thing. So I'll, Jean, you can go ahead. And if somebody else wanted to say something, please let me know too. Um, well, I was going to shift gears. Uh, the mind is the mind. <laughs> And it is worthy of lots of 
we could probably do the whole year on it. But the line from the poem that I liked was um, her guarantee that our study would lead us home. And I'm reminded of Ram Dass's phrase, we're all just walking each other home. Mm. And being in Moss with a group of noble disciples uh, lifts me in spirit uh, and in effort uh, to the highest level of um, of intention that I have. And I'm glad to be in this sacred place with you um, on that walk. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jean, for sharing that. It's beautiful, really beautiful. And what a lovely expression of Sangha, too, that we're, we're all just walking each other home. That's beautiful. Thank you. Let's see. Anybody else? Oh, yes. Helen. Um, I was just wondering if, for some reason, I can't see my chat thread anymore. Could you put the name of the poem or the source so I can... Um, oh. a copy of the source is... But I don't see it anymore. Yeah. Thank you. Can you see that now? It's the first free women is the name of the book. Okay. And the poem? The poem, the, it doesn't exactly have a name. It's by Mita. The poems just sort of are, yeah. Well, if anybody, we're about to the time when it's time for us to close in any case. So I think maybe this is a good time for me to go ahead and um, continue on here with our announcements. And I thank everybody for being here and for what you shared. And it was interesting that this big, one of the things that really came up was this sense of not only friends with each other, but friends with our minds. 